You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast. I'm Don Bond here with Colin Campbell, and this episode is a special edition. It's the audio of our disinformation and local elections town hall from this past week. Uh, but we're still going to give you a short intro and get our headliner of the week out there. So, Colin, um, why don't you see who were our winners last time? Yeah, so last week the nominees were the Board of Elections again, because the Board of Elections are constantly in the news, obviously, with the um, absentee ballot lawsuits and everything else. Uh, the Cooper versus, versus Forrest debate uh, that seems so long ago in, uh, in political years or political days uh, and early voting turnout and uh, big win for early voting turnout as there was a big win for early voting uh, with 68%. So I think that was my pick and that was the winner last week. Okay. You want to lead off our uh, headliner? Yeah. So candidate? this week um, I am going with uh, Mark Robinson, who is the candidate for lieutenant governor on the Republican side. Um, if you remember back to the primary, he's, he won sort of an upset victory over a bunch of uh, better known Republicans. Uh, he's best known for a viral video uh, at the Greensboro City Council arguing for gun rights. Um, and uh, he's had some interesting online activity that's uh, popped up. Uh, a lot of Facebook posts that uh, take aim at transgender people, at Muslims, at other various other groups. Uh, but what I wrote about this week was a video that uh, came across my desk where he was being interviewed by Sean Moon, who, if you're familiar with the Reverend Moon of the Moonies group, Sean is the son. Uh, Sean has a church up in Pennsylvania where that he, among the other teachings, is that the U.S. government's going to collapse and that he, Sean Moon, will become king of America. Um, I kid you not. Uh, so he's interviewing. That. <laughs> uh, he's on this video uh, interviewing Mark Robinson in 2019. Uh, Sean Moon's wearing his trademark camouflage jacket and crown of bullet shells, uh, and he espouses this theory about the four horsemen of the apocalypse being uh, the Rothschild family of Jewish bankers, the CIA. China and Islam. And uh, after he goes through that diatribe, Robinson comes on and he says, you know, you're exactly right. It's amazing what you can learn on the internet that's just there for everybody to see. Um, so we wrote about that. Uh, the uh, Robinson campaign stressed that he, Mark Robinson, was not the one who said those words, even though he agreed with them. And, and they proceeded to call me fake news. So uh, for calling me fake news and perhaps creating one of the, the strangest political videos and interviews that I've ever watched, uh, Mark Robinson's my pick this week. All right. So that actually ties into the rest of our episode here with disinformation. My, my headliner is going to be related to that, to the idea of disinformation and that phrase fake news. Um, it's going to be the campaign ads crunch. Part of when you all listen here in a minute to the disinformation panel, it uh, explains what it is, what disinformation is and the intent and misinformation and everything like that and, and campaign ads and what they try to do. So if you watch local news, national news, I mean, it's ad after ad after ad. I'm sure all of you have seen that um, on social media, ads everywhere. And so, you know, in the mail, you can't escape it. So my headliner is cam campaign ads crunch because we're here a week and a half from from the campaign. So going on the themes of our of our headliners, um, when you listen here, just in a few seconds, it'll be this disinformation panel. Uh, we did it earlier this week, and I was the moderator, and it was for the NNO, Charlotte Observer, and the Herald Sun. 
And our experts are Rafael Prieto, Taylor Shaw, Andy Spey, who you will recognize as a Domecast alum, Lori Robertson, Amanda Sturgill, and Phil Napoli. So we hope you enjoy the audio version of that town hall. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Good afternoon. I'm Robin Tomlin. I'm the president and editor of the News and Observer, the Herald Sun, and the Southeast Region Editor for McClatchy. Thanks for joining us today for this discussion about disinformation in local elections, which has been a critical focus for our journalists throughout this important election year. America's architects viewed the press as essential to our democracy, including it in the first article of the Bill of Rights. And yet today, that's being tested with consistent attacks on credible information. But our local journalists at the News and Observer, the Charlotte Observer, and the Herald Sun continue to do fact-based reporting around the clock, reporting on the candidates and the voting process, with a special focus on answering the questions our readers and community members have along the way. We've never had more people reading our stories, viewing our videos, listening to our podcasts, because local news has never been more important. Today, we will share examples of false information at the local level and strategies for spotting it. We brought together misinformation experts and local journalists to discuss how we can navigate with confidence an election unlike any other. Before we begin, my thanks to you for making time to join us today and watch or watching this on demand, uh, for investing in local, credible, fact-based news. We hope that you'll encourage others to support that as well. I'd also like to thank the team that helped to put together today's event, Managing Editor Jane Elizabeth, Regional Audience Growth Editor Cal Lundmark, and McClatchy's Video and Training Project Manager Rachel Wise, and Video Producer uh, Kevin Keister. With that, please help me welcome Dawn Vaughn, a member of our political team here at the News and Observer. She's going to be moderating our discussions today. Good afternoon. We have some great experts in media, education, political disinformation to talk with us today in just an hour. So we're going to jump right in with questions. Our first panel will be the two academics in the room who will talk about their research and insights. And the second panel will be four journalists who will give us a look into their work and will offer some advice to voters who are trying to navigate through disinformation and social media and in political ads. First up. Amanda Sturgill is an associate professor of journalism at Elon University and the author of Detecting Deception, Fighting Fake News. Phil Napoli is a professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University and the author of Social Media and Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. Welcome. So we'll, st <laughs> we'll start with a few quick definitions. Amanda, can you explain disinformation and the phrase fake news and how each is used? And what about partial truths? Okay, so when it comes to the idea of fake news, what it is really depends on who you ask. So a lot of people will use the phrase fake news to refer to basically journalists making things up. And that is really not a thing that happens with credible journalists. It gets used as a way to sort of malign the news and to erode the trust that people might have in the information that they get from news. That's not to say that journalists don't make mistakes sometimes. They definitely do. That's why they have um, correction sections in newspapers, for example. Um, and sort of in this time, one of the things I tell my students is it's extra important to you know, verify everything because those little mistakes that you're making are getting mixed up with that idea about fake news. But fake news is usually the idea that the things that you read are not trustworthy. Um, when they come from regular media outlets. Media outlets do have standards of ethics that they use, and the idea of fake news in that way, like I said, really not a thing. 
The idea of misinformation is a little bit different. And I kind of think of that as like the sort of weapons grade version of that. And it comes from a couple of different places. Um, for one, it comes from what we might call trolls, sort of people who are trying to cause chaos or spread bad information for some reason that they have. Uh, in some cases, they're organized groups, um, sometimes even, you know, paid by other governments, uh, in some cases, more homegrown. Uh, some cases, they're just individuals. And then the misinformation that gets um, created by the trolls will then get spread by automated programs called bots to increase their impact out in the world. Okay, thanks. Uh, Phil, this one's for you. Can you tell us how disinformation and misinformation are different and about the rise of disinformation websites? And then what is pink slime? Sure, sure. So the difference in terms of how disinformation and misinformation are being used these days really actually has to do with intention. Uh, so disinformation typically refers to falsity that's intentionally uh, produced and shared, uh, whereas misinformation refers to falsity that's not intentionally uh, produced and shared. Uh, so, and obviously, you know, any kind of definition that gets at the intentions of those involved uh, is very tricky. And so you can be a recipient of disinformation, not be aware of it, and then when you share it, we would then refer to it as misinformation because you were not aware necessarily that it was um, false. So it's a matter of intention that that you know distinguishes the two. Um, what we're seeing today online um, are the rise of news sites that are often often have the appearance of of local news sites or even of of just local news accounts on social media platforms, um, but are in fact oftentimes actually very um, coordinated uh, political influence operations. Um, if, if folks might have seen some reporting about this this very week in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, um, a lot of times these sites might be um, just very hyper-partisan uh, one way or the other, uh, local news sites. Um, but unfortunately, the data show that there's a, a fairly significant relationship between partisanship and the likelihood of, of spreading inaccurate information. Uh, sometimes these sites uh, are pure disinformation sites. Uh, we had this in North Carolina earlier in the year. There was a site called um, North Carolina Breaking News that was operating actually as a, as a Facebook account. Uh, and they were repurposing and distributing news stories that had happened in other states at other times and then rewriting them to make them look like they had happened here in North Carolina. Um, and oftentimes these were stories that were specifically designed uh, to inflame racial tensions. Uh, so we're, we're, we're actually a, a focal point of, of a lot of this type of work these days. There's a, there are 50 of these what we are being referred to as pink slime sites in operation in North Carolina right now. Uh, that term refers to this growing network of hyperpartisan local news sites that are in fact operating in partnership with political actors even as the New York Times investigation showed, actually taking payment uh, to engage in reporting or to, to, to you know, produce stories uh, on particular topics that whether it's a political candidate or a think tank or a political action committee, that they want uh, stories to air uh, or to run on particular topics. Uh, and that network of those type of sites um, is now tripled actually just in the past year. That's a lot. Um, Amanda, your book, Detecting Deception, discusses how people are misled by numbers, particularly in polls. So we're inundated by polls right now. How do we tell a good poll from a bad poll? And when we find a good poll, what does that actually mean? 
Okay, we are inundated by polls right now, and this is pretty typical of an election season. Uh, personally, I'm not a huge fan of extensive poll coverage because I think it kind of draws the news towards cover strategy rather than covering issues in the elections. And then it is also hard for people to tell if a poll is a good one or maybe not such a good one. I think you can ask yourself a couple of questions about a poll to get an idea of if it is a good one. Uh, the first question would be, who did they ask? So did they ask all adults? Was that sort of their target? Or did they ask all registered voters? Or did they ask all likely voters? Those would be kind of different answers that you might get in those cases. Whenever they are asking people, you can't ask everybody. So you're asking a few and using their answers to count for everybody's answers. And that's called taking a sample. And the way that they did the sample also matters. So that gets to the second question. The first was who? And the second is how? How did they actually find the people to ask those questions? For a long time, uh, polls were conducted using landline phone surveys. And if you can think about, those of you who are listening to this, uh, if you have a landline phone in your house, uh, none of the people that I have taught probably for 15 years have had a landline in their house. And so you're systematically leaving out people when you do that, right? The sample is not good, so it doesn't describe the population. So how they did the poll matters as well. Um, in particular, things like uh, Twitter polls or TV station call-in polls, those kinds of things, they don't really tell you anything about anything. Um, finally, this is what they ask. So we've got who, how, and what. So what they ask. And so you can actually ask questions in a way that will sort of bias people's way of wanting to answer. So if you ask questions like, wouldn't you agree that this is true? Well, most people want to be agreeable, so they may be more likely to say yes if they don't actually think that. Um, I've seen some political polls that will describe, you know, how do you think this affects our movement? And that makes you feel like you're part of a group and you should say a particular thing. So uh, lots of polls, lots of different quality on them, who, how, and what. And then as far as what polls tell you, they sort of give you a snapshot of what it's like today. So they're not predictive of what it's going to be like two weeks from now. They're just telling you what it is today. And so they're useful if you're planning strategy for the next two weeks, but they're not really that useful in telling you what's going to happen. Okay. Um Phil, during election season, we hear phrases filter bubbles and echo chambers. So what are those and how can you avoid being caught in them? Sure, sure. So the, so the term filter bubble, uh, it's been around for about a decade now and really refers to the ways in which we're able to use different technologies um, to limit our exposure to news and information that might contradict our existing biases or our existing worldviews. Uh, so if you think about, um, you know, who you follow in your social media feeds, uh, if they all are of a similar ideological persuasion or you rely on certain types of news outlets in your feed, that can help to construct uh, a filter bubble uh, where you might be completely unaware of other information, potentially accurate information uh, that might contradict what you are being exposed to in your filter bubble. Uh, and the echo chamber con concept is fairly similar, but I think an important dimension of that is this idea of lots of repetition and lots of recirculation of the same uh, viewpoint of the same pieces of information. And that, and that process is very important to sort of establishing, uh, you know, hardening people's beliefs around certain things. So repetition, when we talk about the, uh, how different disinformation operates in the political sphere, constant repetition is, is a big part. And so a lot of what we're seeing these days are networks of news sites that will all be sharing and recirculating the same uh, content to, to reinforce particular uh, you know, perspectives. 
Um, how do we avoid it? Um, I mean, the, the thing I tell people the most is try to go back to the old days of when you used to actively visit sites or engage in different types of media outlets directly rather than relying upon your uh, social media network to uh, put content in front of you. Um, do research, do actual research on um, the different types of outlets that are available to you. There are all sorts of interesting sites and resources. Uh, all sides, for example, uh, is one that will tell you the, you know, the ideological orientation of all different types of news and information sources out there. Uh, so that you can either look for ones that are on the other end of the continuum from what you've been exposing yourself to, or perhaps you could try to focus your attention on those that don't uh, exist at the partisan extremes. So there's a little more legwork involved these days and a little more active effort required on the part of us as news consumers uh, to avoid falling into the filter bubble trap because so much of the technologies we use today are inherently built to help us construct these filter bubbles. Facebook algorithms, YouTube algorithms, Twitter algorithms, all are oriented in a way primarily around continuing our exposure to news and information and viewpoints that reflect what we've already exposed ourselves to. So it's again about reinforcing uh, behavioral patterns that we've already demonstrated. Um, for those of you that are watching that have registered, you can submit questions. So we're interspersing those with everything today. Um, this one's for Amanda. Are there laws in place to deter disinformation? And if so, uh, what are the loopholes? So specific laws to deter disinformation, really not so much. So we have an ethos of free speech in this country, and it's actually protected in the Constitution, the very First Amendment. And I feel like the spread of disinformation in some ways is taking advantage of that ethos of free speech. Um, so there are laws that do restrict speech. So, for example, there are libel laws. So you cannot make up bad things about someone else and publish them and damage them. You could be sued for that. Um, we have limits, so you can't um, make terrorist threats and call that protected speech in that case. But generally, the laws do tend to um, act in favor of free speech. A place where it gets complicated, though, is that the um, platforms that carry the messages where most people get their news, right, the social media platforms are private companies. And so the first word in the First Amendment is Congress, and it's talking about laws that are actually made by the government. But private companies mostly can do as they wish uh, sort of in the market. And so they can restrict certain kinds of speech. Um, as we've seen lately, even just this week, that's very controversial when they decide to do that. And um, sometimes they'll be deciding to just apply consistent rules to everybody to do that. Okay, sorry, a delay here pulling, uh, pulling my questions up. <laughs> uh, another reader question, this one for Phil. Um, is there a respectful way to tell a friend that they're spreading inaccurate information? That's a great question. <laughs> I think there's a respectful way to, to tell a friend that they are. Um, you can share fact checks or you know share um, you know information that might contradict that uh, what they're sharing. Uh, whether that's going to, to work is uh, another issue. Um, and I think we've all experienced these. Uh, moments in our lives with friends and family at this point where, um, you know, things, you know, move from respect, respectful to, uh, to heated fairly, fairly quickly. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's any, any, you know, secret solution yet to, to helping 
friends, family members, et cetera, who are, who are sort of engaged in consuming and sharing misinformation. Um, I think we've got about time for, for one more question. This one was reader submitted. Uh, Amanda, if you want to field this one, is disinformation, misinformation used to suppress voter turnout in local elections, do you think? I absolutely do think it is, yes. Um, I think it's used to suppress voter turnout in all kinds of elections. And the thing that about that is it's really easy to do because you don't have to have provably bad or false things. You just have to create doubt in people's minds, right? And so there's a group of people who might vote. And if it just becomes too confusing or too hard, they might make that choice not to vote because they don't kind of know what's real anymore. We sort of see that with um, college-age voters a lot. What do, you, what do you think, Phil? The same? We just saw an interesting uh, revelation in the past week or so where we, uh, the Cambridge Analytica data breach scandal um, from a, a few years back um, it was shown that those data are actually being specifically used to target uh, African-American voters uh, with campaigns that would discourage them uh, from voting. Uh, and, and we've seen this, we saw this in, in the 2016 election where in some cases, you know, pure disinformation was being spread about, you know, the hours that the polls were open, you know, it, it, it'll misinform people about how much time they had to vote, et cetera. Uh, we're seeing that, of course, now with all the misinformation and disinformation being spread about the legitimacy of the election. And of course, if you undermine people's faith in the legitimacy of, of the entire electoral process, that's something that can can depress turnout. Uh, but there is a long history of that happening in our in our political campaigns of um, you know of of depressing turnout and and discouraging voting as 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 a key part of political strategy. Okay, um, thank you both so much for your time. That's the end of our our first segment. Uh, we appreciate um, everything you shared today. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, before we move on to our next panel, we'd like to show you a segment of our video on deconstructing political ads. We think this video will help you see campaign ads a little differently the next time you watch them on TV or YouTube or social media. During election season, political ads are ubiquitous, appearing on social media, television, websites, even music videos and online games. Try taking a few minutes to really scrutinize the elements of the next ads you see here are some tactics to look out for. After months of silence, Catherine Cortez Masto announced her support for the Iran nuclear deal. We have an agreement and we need to move forward. A deal that gives Note the use of repetition, broken fonts, distorted video, and dramatic voiceovers. Near the end of this ad, you'll see what appears to be a nuclear explosion. And that's a tactic taken from the most famous deceptive dramatization ad in history, the Daisy ad in 1964. In it, Democratic presidential candidate Lyndon Johnson responded to Republican candidate Barry Goldwater's statement that he would consider using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live are to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. I 
In the anti-Hillary Clinton ad, you'll see photos of the candidate presented to imply that she's ill or not physically fit enough to become president. Hillary Clinton doesn't have the fortitude, strength, or stamina to lead in Notice some photos are modified to appear shadowy, and frames are selected to emit context. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Every morning, I say a prayer for my... In this Louisiana Senate race ad from 2014, the favored candidate is presented in sympathetic situations, surrounded by children, for example, and is only shown smiling in bright colors. Photos of her opponent, however, are presented in black and white and depict mainly his scowling face. Many campaign ads are relatively short, and so are humans' attention spans. Therefore, each word in a campaign ad is vetted carefully to ensure it's absolutely needed to get the message across. The limited word choice often purposefully omits context, making the ad deceptive because of the words that weren't used. Another way words are abused in campaign ads is by selecting a pile of positive-sounding words and stringing them together for a narrative that sounds nice but has no real meaning. This narrative uses words, phrases, and data to make a point, while conveniently omitting points that would disprove the message. Here's an ad in which a candidate for city mayor accuses his opponent of supporting elite private schools that are actually charter schools. Founded by his big campaign contributors, I'm Chuy Garcia. I will stop privatizing our public schools and let you elect the school board. And he accuses his opponent of not providing funding for schools when the money actually comes from the state. I will give control of your schools back to you. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. This strategy uses repetition along with peer pressure to persuade the viewer that they'll be outcasts if they don't vote for a particular candidate. One of the first television ads to use this technique was the 1952 I Like Ike campaign. Note the word repetition in the happy faces of people walking in step with each other. Common Core, Obama's Medicaid expansion, tax increases. Barack Obama? No. John Kasich. Sometimes an ad doesn't even seem to be about the candidate, but someone the ad producers want you to associate with the candidate. Former President Obama's words and image have appeared in ads for candidates from local to national races, both to persuade voters to support or reject the candidate because of the Obama connection. In this ad, candidate John Kasich's opponent accuses him of being an Obama Republican. Also, note the dark, conspiratorial photo and shadowy lettering. Yes, even fonts are carefully chosen to provoke a desired emotion. All right. Well, we hope you've uh, enjoyed seeing the video. You can see the full version on our websites and Facebook pages for the News and Observer, Charlotte Observer, and Herald Sun. So we're on to our next segment. Our next panelist, or Rafael Prieto, joins us from Charlotte and is editorial director of the Charlotte-based Que Pasa Mi Gente. Thanks for joining us. We've got Andy Spey, a former NNO politics and fact-checking reporter who's now the PolitiFact North Carolina reporter at WRL. Thanks, Andy. And uh, we've got Lori Robertson, who joins us from the Washington, D.C. area and is managing editor of factcheck.org. Welcome. 
and Taylor Shaw, a former NNO social media manager who now works at the University of Virginia. So thanks everybody for being here. I'll go, I'll go right into the questions. Um, Raphael, first up for you. Um, We've seen plenty of reports about the impact of disinformation that targets Latino voters in the U.S. Do you think this is in North Carolina? And if so, where do you think that misinformation is coming from? Uh, fortunately, we live in a very civil state, uh, especially for Spanish language media. Uh, that, the, that situation is very different, like in Miami right, right now, that both campaigns, uh, the presidential campaigns, are uh, sending all, all kind of messages and uh, all kind of accusations and, and reference uh, to the people that uh, maybe not be communist and, and they accuse to be communist and relate them to uh, people in Latin America that they dislike. Fortunately, in, in North Carolina, uh, the misinformation Maybe it's in the social media. Right now, unfortunately, the democratization of the internet has uh, had devastating uh, impact in the relations uh, between people and the information that the people present there without fact-checking. I believe something that we lack in the Spanish language media is not having the resources for paying somebody or paying people that uh, do fact-checking. I believe right now in the country, in the actual uh, uh, environment, political environment that we live, is really uh, something that is very important, that the people don't use not repeat what they see in, 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 in the news, but that they have context and do some fact-checking about anything that is uh, uh, broadcast. Okay, thanks. Um, Andy, for you, you've worked with PolitiFact at both uh, here at the NNO and, and REL. Could you start by telling us a little about the history of PolitiFact and what they do? Sure. PolitiFact started about 10 years ago. It was started by a man named Bill Adair, who was at the Tampa Bay Times and uh, now teaches down the road at Duke University. Um, so he's a mentor of mine. Um, and what it basically does is it has a procedure for fact checking claims made by politicians or campaigns or anything else you might see on TV or in, on social media or on the Internet. Uh, and so we use official sources to check people's claims. We always reach out to the person or the campaign or political action committee um, to ask where they got their information. And then uh, after doing that, uh, we review the available evidence and come up with a rating. And those ratings um, are anywhere from true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and even the crowd favorite, pants on fire. Um, and so uh, that that meter has stayed the same for the most part throughout the years. Um, and these days, uh, we're putting forth a lot of effort to try to give people more fact checks in real time. Uh, in fact, this Thursday, PolitiFact and WREL will be fact checking the presidential debate in real time on our online live stream. We have plenty of fodder for that, I'm sure. Uh, Lori, uh, factcheck.org is the oldest fact-checking organization in the country. Can you tell us about how it started and what you do there? Sure. 
Um, well, we launched in 2003, um, so right uh, before the 2004 election. Uh, we're a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, our mission is to reduce the level of deception and confusion in US politics and help voters uh, separate fact from fiction in all of the messages that are coming at them. Um, you know, we go through a process much like PolitiFact. Um, we are looking at statements made by politicians, uh, whether those are in TV ads or interviews or speeches or debates or social media. Um, we concentrate on federal offices, so we're looking at uh, president, presidential races, uh, Congress. Uh, we may do some high-profile senatorial races. Sorry, my dog is here. Um, and, um, you know, we I'm the managing editor. We have a fairly small staff. Uh, we have nine people full-time, um, so I both write and edit. Um, and a little bit about our funding as well. We're funded, um, we've been funded primarily through the Annenberg Foundation. Um, we do take individual donations as, as well. If you give us a thousand dollars or more, we print your name and uh, city and state. Um, we also get money from Facebook. We have a, a partnership uh, or relationship with Facebook where we are fact checking claims um, made on social media and uh, fact check pays us for that work. Um, and we also have a small grant from the Stanton Foundation, uh, which was founded by a late uh, president of CBS. Okay. I think we've got multiple dogs probably on the call if, uh, if anyone else wants to chime in too. So far, mine's been quiet. So, uh, Taylor, you worked with social media for years. What would you say are the biggest changes that you've seen when it comes to misinformation on, on all the platforms? Yeah, I would say the... Like one of the biggest changes is that it's so much harder to determine if a piece of content or something that you see is misinformation. Um, so it's so much harder to identify misinformation on social media. Um, so it's like not just articles or text, but now there's deceptive audio or photos and video. Um, you know, we've seen videos of deep fakes or manipulated media. Um, and interviews being taken out of context that really makes it really hard for the user, the reader, the audience to determine um, what's real and what's not. Okay. Um, this one's for Raphael. So already this year, the presidential campaigns have outspent 2016's advertising budgets by 100 million. And MIT report says there's been a particular focusing on messaging in both English and Spanish um, about healthcare, abortion, immigration. Much of it is misleading or completely false. Do you see these ads in your community? And what can media organizations like yours do about it? Again, we are not the the focus of the millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. By the contrary, we are not, uh, especially print media in Spanish, are not receiving that much money from, from ads or uh, from, from campaigns. However, uh, uh, I, I, in daily basis, I look the uh, um, uh, major uh, TV networks in, in, in Spanish, and there you can see the ads uh, claiming things that are not that are evidently not true uh, from 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 the campaigns. Uh, we uh, try with all our resources to be very careful in our in our information. 
and very careful in uh, uh, transmit the the what 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 is true. However, as uh, as the uh, Hispanic community is uh, has been very 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 affected by the policies of the president, especially for the uh, undocumented population, um, we are not uh, um, that one of, 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 of the current president. However, it's a segment in the Hispanic community, at least 30% of the Hispanic community, that are, uh, that are followers of our President Trump and uh, and uh, and really, the people don't mind whatever message they receive. Of course, we are very careful also about what uh, the Democratic uh, Party party say or, or President Biden says. Locally, fortunately, uh, we, besides one scandal in the city council that uh, right now everybody is investigated, after one councilman was uh, accused of improperty. Uh, here in Charlotte, uh, we don't have major problems with the local elections or, or misinformation among the candidates. Okay. Um, Andy, you've been in fact checking for a few years now. What differences do you see in the work that you do now? Has it become more difficult and how? I see a, probably three differences. Uh, and to start off, I think I'll say, um, on one hand, there's a lot more to fact check because of social media and things like that, even things like TikTok and uh, videos that anyone can circulate. Um, so that's good in that we have a lot of work to do, uh, but bad in that there aren't enough PolitiFacts. There aren't enough, you know, McClatchy's. There aren't enough factcheck.orgs. Uh, we just don't have uh, the people to fact check everything that's out there. And if we fact check one thing, then uh, we've seen where the politician or the political action committee will just tweak it slightly, put it back out there to avoid us. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, I've seen more outright dismissal of fact checking in general. Um, and that includes in North, some of North Carolina's races where uh, a couple of candidates are openly hostile to fact checking in general. Um, and then the third one, I, I would say the people who do, who have been doing this a long time, uh, have gotten a little more savvy. Um, one example I can give is uh, Senator Tom Tillis is obviously up for reelection. Uh, he went on uh, our debate uh, with Cal Cunningham earlier in September, and he, he made a claim about Cal Cunningham's getting a tax credit for his house. And he said uh, Cunningham got a tax credit for his butler's pantry. Now, if you're watching that debate, you might not realize that Cunningham doesn't have a butler, or he says he doesn't. Uh, a butler's pantry is a term used to describe a part of a kitchen. And so I don't, I don't know what I'm about to say to be true, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there are teams of people for say the national Republican campaign committees or the national democratic campaign committees who uh, workshop some of these messages and deliver them in ways that are very uh, savvy to try to 
uh, avoid fact checking or to just slip past our radar. Um, so that that's another thing I've seen. I think a lot of people saw the commercials like, what's a butler's pantry? And then had to look it up and thought, yeah. wow, that's pretty neat. Uh, so, Lori, you've worked in media for a long time now and been a media critic. Uh, what do you think the mainstream media should do more of or less of or differently to, to stop the spread of disinformation and misinformation? Yeah, well, one thing we have seen that's encouraging um, in recent years, we've seen more and more fact checking slipped into daily news stories. Um, so by a daily news story, I mean, uh, you know, a, a, a news story on a speech a politician gave, uh, for instance, um, or a debate between two politicians. Uh, and the story is presenting what those politicians said. Uh, we've seen a little more over the years of those stories, also including a quick line, um, when possible saying, actually, that's not true. Uh, you know, in a really, really brief explanation of, of why. Uh, and I think that's encouraging um, because a lot of times fact checking gets relegated to its, its own little story. Um, at the same time, it often does need its own story because while a politician will make a claim in one sentence, uh, it can take several sentences or even several paragraphs sometimes to explain the facts behind that claim. Um, you know, some things are easy. A politician might say, use a number and say it's 100 and the real number is 20. And you can fact check that pretty quickly. Um, but a lot of claims that are misleading or uh, don't tell the whole story or you know take somebody's words out of context, it takes a lot more explanation behind that. Um, so, you know, dedicating resources to fact checking. And we have seen more and more news organizations do that over the years. Um, we are a nonprofit, factcheck.org, so our content is actually available for free for others to reprint, and some news organizations uh, do that. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, politicians tend to repeat the same claims over and over again. Uh, you know, as you get further into a political campaign, you'll have, you know, a few of the top talking points that reporters and the public are hearing again and again. From the same candidates. Uh, so, you know, even if news organizations aren't able to uh, slip fact-checking in the main stories or dedicate a reporter or a team of reporters to fact-checking, um, there, I think, could be an opportunity for a story at some point during the campaign looking at uh, here are the top talking points we've seen from these candidates and here's the truth behind them. Uh, so, Taylor, if you could only follow one social media platform to get all of your news or to fed all of your news, um, which one would you pick? And is it because you trust it the most? Ooh, this question, Dawn. Um, I would choose Twitter simply because they are taking steps in the right direction with warning labels to help readers or users identify um, misinformation or flagging tweets or removing them at like removing them from the platform. Um, and I know that Twitter is also the playground where a lot of misinformation spreads, but it's good to see that um, Twitter is making moves to help um, users in the audience to, to flag disinformation or to flag misinformation and to stop spreading it. Uh, I've got to say, I'm also um, Twitter is my my favorite for, for for news, for news feeds, Instagram for not news. <laughs> uh, so like I mentioned before, in our first segment, we're interspersing a lot of reader questions and, and what we have. And so uh, this one for for Raphael, um, 
how do you have a useful conversation with someone about their misinformation um, when that person is only thinking about their their own ideology? Uh, it, it has happened. Uh, sometimes with a good uh, um, solution or, or, or good uh, uh, solving the, the difference or uh, when the people are very nasty. Yeah, I have those conversations uh, and I insist again that uh, we journalists at least have to check the information from three sources, from three sources to publish something that is uh, uh, critical and, uh, and that those people must, say, must do the same. Uh, really, I am very glad to have in a panel people that do fact-checking. Right now, I believe it's the most important duty uh, of any journalist to have people that, that uh, verify the information and uh, establish what is true and what is a lie. Um, Andy, I've got a, a two-parter for you. Um, it's multiple reader questions uh, rolled into one. So I feel like I'm at a um, press conference questioning you. So political ads appear on TV, including your station, on news websites and in newspapers. And some of those ads contain misleading or even false information. So as a reporter, how do you deal with that? How do you explain that to your audience? And then the related question is, by covering false claims by politicians, are you spreading that information even more? Okay, I'll start with the first one. Uh, just like we have a division between the newsroom and the editorial board, there's a wall between the newsroom and advertising. So I think most people would say that it's good that there's a wall between the newsroom and the editorial board. I don't hear from them, they don't hear from me. I can't remember the last time I read an editorial. Um, uh, that exists with advertising too. And, you know, people spend money uh, to get on our airwaves. And I think it's probably, A, I don't have time to review everything before it goes on, to, on air. Um, but uh, it's fair that I don't see it before it goes on air. I can, and then when it does, um, we can hold people accountable. And I know that uh, lately we've been fact-checking some of the that the ads that do appear on screen. And when we do, we mention that. Uh, Travis Fain, our political reporter who presents our fact-checks, will say, uh, you may have seen this on our airwaves. Here's the rest of the story. Um, so that's how we've been dealing with it. Uh, to the second question, um, well, can you repeat the second question? Um I think you, you kind of answer it, but it's but when you when you cover it, are you are you spreading that misinformation? That's the reader oh. question, and then and then mine would be like, how do you how do you stop from doing that? One thing Lori mentioned that I think is important to note here is is that um, we we can't fact check everything, and so often we fact check the claims that are in advertisements. People have obviously spent lots of money on digital ads or on TV ads, um, or it's something that a candidate repeats again and again, and you know, if you're plugged in like like we are, we listen to all the debates. We, you know, hear President Trump. We hear Joe Biden. Uh, we see a lot of their content, and so we have to pick claims that we think have already been seen or that have a high likelihood of being seen. So, uh, I don't think it's fair to say you know we're amplifying misinformation. I think we do a good job of 
putting a record out for readers and viewers um, in case they want to go research it. So if someone, if, if Joe Biden has says something that's inaccurate or in our case, mostly false or false, you know, we would rate it something like that. And you haven't seen it before. I think, you know, it, it's still best to tell you about it uh, and show you the rating before you go see it in the wild, so to speak, before it shows up on your TV, before you hear it on the radio. And I don't think that amplifies it. I think that just arms you um, with armor, you know, you so that it's not going to influence you the way it might have otherwise. Agreed. Uh, Lori, this is more reader questions. Could you give an example of a particularly egregious misinformation instance that factcheck.org has dealt with? Okay. Um, you know, it's, that's, it's really hard to pick one. Um, I Top would three. Say- <laughs> Yeah, one of the most uh, well-known uh, stories of ours uh, was headlined "Born in the USA," um, and this was a story about uh, cl- false claims that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Um, we actually had two staffers in Chicago in 2008 who were able to go to the Obama campaign headquarters and see and touch and examine and photograph the birth certificate. Um, So that story that we wrote was the most popular on our site um, for even a couple of years after that. And we continued to fact check um, all sorts of claims uh, that continued um, to kind of promote that conspiracy theory. Um, but you know, every year we do a big whoppers, uh, of the year story. So in late December of this year, we'll do whoppers of 2020. And those are the most egregious stories that we saw for the year, uh, the most egregious falsehoods, uh, rather. So, um, you know, readers can check those out over the years to see what we've written about. We don't rank them. We don't do a sort of number one falsehood of the year, but we list several that we saw over the years. Um, last year, uh, one of the claims there was uh, President Trump's claims that Ukraine or a Ukrainian company had possession of a Democratic National Committee server. Uh, there's no evidence for that. Um, and, you know, there are definitely some th- common themes that we see again and again um, every election cycle or every year uh, claims about Medicare, for one, uh, claims about Social Security and taxes. Those might be about the, you know, certainly in the top five of the subject matter that we deal with, uh, with some of the egregious misinformation that's out there. Okay. Um, and, and we've got so many reader questions. I'm going to go through more of these. Um, Taylor, what are some ideas for quickly identifying bogus posts on Facebook? Yes. Um, I think that you can ask yourself four questions to help you identify um, bogus posts on Facebook. The first one is, do the facts hold up? You know, is there any information that you could verify like a name or a place or some sort of document? Like, is there some sort of verification that you can do? Number two would be the person who made this, can I trust them? Can I trust this information from this source? Um, The third one would be is looking at the big picture. Um, think about the whole story and weigh um, the other forces surrounding it or the other forces that may be influencing this piece of content. And last but not least, um, a question that you can ask yourself is, how is this information presented? Um, Is there 
the image choices that, you know, that's associated with the post or the video? Is there grammar or a style thing that just doesn't feel right? Um, I think those are the four things that can help you as you're going through your feeds or, you know, friends or family are sharing content um, that you, your spidey senses may start to tingle and um, for misinformation in this, in the post. Um, and another reader question that, that's close to that, um, Raphael. So what's the best way to approach friends and acquaintances about misinformation they're repeating or that they're spreading in social media? What, what should people do? Uh, contact the person and recommend uh, that right? and, and in this world that we live, the, you can click in Google and verify the things. Tell them that it, it, it is a, a priority. It's a priority to research if something doesn't sound right, and if, if the claiming is not, um, uh, it, it, does, it doesn't sound sound right. But uh, you can approach the person through the through the social media. Or maybe do a phone call as, as me that I am from the old times will solve the situation uh, better, better. Okay. Um, and Andy, back to you. Can you explain how you choose your sources and how fact checking is different than regular journalism? Yes, PolitiFact makes a point to look at original sources. I and factcheck.org does that too. So if for example, someone says, oh, the city council is going to raise property taxes by X percent in this budget. Then we go look at that budget and we find the line where it says, you know, property taxes will be raised X percent. We don't take, you know, someone's word for it or anything like that. We show you the document. And I would say that's the biggest difference between uh, regular reporting, if you will, and fact checking is that, uh, not only do we go get the original documents, the original birth certificates in some cases, uh, but we also show our work. And you can find that on politifact.com and factcheck.org and Snopes and um, all these very highly credible um, fact-checking organizations. You can go and see what we looked at. Why did we rate something mostly false? Why did we rate something true? You can go behind me Andy Spay and see what I looked at to come up with that rating. And that's different. Most people will see that that's different from, you know, a typical WRAL story, typical news and observer story. And that, you know, if we report on a press conference, we're going to give you what the Republicans said, what the Democrats said, and then we're going to leave it there and talk more about the issue, but we're not going to go in depth about, you know, what the budget is, what does the budget say, and things like that. Um, and I think that's the biggest benefit. Uh, and it's also great for me, because people can disagree with our ratings all day long. And they do. Uh, but when it comes to the reporting itself, I don't think we've had uh, any complaints that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, where anyone says, oh, well, you missed this or you misreported that. You can go see our sources. You can go see the websites we used. Um, and that's, I think that's great. And Taylor mentioned, you know, if you see something on social media 
and it's a claim with no link to anything uh, that gets your spidey senses going. That's the difference, you know, between the things you see on social media, the things you hear on radio is we can show you why something is right or wrong. Right. We bring receipts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For sure. We've got lots of them. Um, Lori, uh, more reader questions. So what are some other than your, your own website, what, what are some other websites or tools you can recommend that can help voters with fact checking? And then also, how do you choose uh, what to write fact checks about? Sure. Um, well, let's see. So what readers can do, I mean, obviously, we've got a couple of, uh, of uh, sources right here on our panel with factcheck.org, um, politifact.com, uh, and uh, other fact-checking organizations uh, include the Washington Post Fact Checker, uh, Snopes.com, which does a lot of uh, social media viral claims. Um, and those are probably the big ones, but also local reporting as well is do, are, are now doing, uh, local news organizations are now doing a lot of fact-checking too. Um, you know, I often tell people it's surprising what, you know, you can find in a Google search. Um, and I think something that you've heard again and again from uh, the panel today is asking what's the source of the claim. Um, so, you know, if there is a claim about uh, employment statistics, well, you can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and get those numbers. Um, you know, is there a claim about the trade deficit? Uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis has those numbers. Uh, and if you do a quick Google search, usually those are the sources that will come up at the top of your list. Um, or if you don't know the source, often, you know, Google searching the claim will pull something out and you can you can figure out, oh, well, this is the source of the claim and then start to further evaluate that source. Um, and how do we pick what we fact check? Uh, well, we monitor um, major political players. Um, like I said, so right now we're really deep into the presidential election. Uh, we're looking at all of the speeches that President Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee Joe Biden are giving and we're flagging in um, each of those speeches uh, factual claims that we can check. Um, at this point in the campaign, we find that there are a lot of things that we've written about before, um, but there's new claims as well. And we will do a little bit of uh, research, you know, say I'm looking at one speech, I might do a little uh, initial research to figure out what this claim is about. Uh, and then we have a conversation as a staff. Uh, here's what I found so far. Does this look like it's something we should dig into a little more? Um, you know, how many times has this person said this claim? If it's something they've repeated a lot, that definitely goes higher on our list of something that we'd like to look into. Um, and one of the first things we do, of course, is reach out to the campaigns and ask for information, ask what's the source and, and what's the support for this claim. Thanks. We're, uh, we've got a few minutes left, so I've got one more question for Taylor and then a question for everybody. Uh, Taylor is a social media expert. How do you personally respond to people that put misinformation in your social media feeds? What do you do? Yes. So um, it depends on the person. Like if it's someone that I'm really close to and they share something that is misinformation, I send them a private message to say, hey, I think you should read this with a link to a verified source or some sort of research or some sort of additional information that helps um, helps guide this misinformation. Um, if it's someone that I don't know or if it's someone that I don't have a relationship with, I do not personally respond because 
then that could become a back and forth. And I, mental health and self-care, <laughs> myself and my sanity um, is very important. So I think it's just about choosing your battles. And um, if you know that you can message someone and it will be well-received, um, reach out to them. If you think that, you know, I don't, you know, I'm just, someone else can take that battle or someone else can do that. So that's just how I respond personally to misinformation. I think choose your battles is really good advice for, for everybody. So it's not nonstop. Uh, so this is for, for everyone that, that wants to answer. So as misinformation grows around us and, and as well-known news organizations are tending to get smaller, how can, how can your organization fight the increase in false information? And what do you need to be able to do that? Anybody? Andy, you can go first. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, that's a 30,000 foot uh, question. Um, I think the next step would be fact checking things in real time. Um, you know, the saying is, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before, you know, a fact checker gets out of bed or something like that. And we have these staffs and we're working so, so hard to get as much as to fact check as much as possible. Um, I think the next step would just be more resources and partnerships with uh, tech companies like Twitter, like Facebook, uh, to help us attach fact checks and ratings and warnings um, to statements as soon as they're made, as soon as the ads hit, you know, social media, as soon as the claims hit social media, as soon as they're said on the airwaves. I think that's the next big step that we uh, need to take. How do we do it? I don't know. Uh, but we could always use more resources. And I, that's a not so subtle plug for PolitiFact and uh, everyone on this panel, factcheck.org. I mean, the donations do go toward things like that, partnerships like that and research like that. All right. Uh, anyone else want to chime in? Lori, what do you think? Um, yeah, I would add to that um, help from readers, uh, because a lot of uh, political messages are very targeted um, and reaching readers in new ways, um, you know, through WhatsApp, uh, for instance, that we're not necessarily seeing. And it's difficult for us to see uh, or mailers that you might receive in your mailbox. Um, you know, those aren't always posted on the Internet where we can see them. And they may be very specific messages for different states. Uh, so, you know, I would make an appeal to readers when you're seeing things like that uh, and you have questions about it or, you know, your skepticism is, is kind of raised. Uh, send them to us. Email us. Um, send us a scan of the document uh, and we'll check it out. It uh, looks like we're out of time. Um, I wanted to thank all of you for, for being here and your time and everybody that's watching this. We appreciate it. Um, we appreciate all your, your insights and expertise and, and hope that um, everybody that, that's been here today is, has learned something. I have too. Uh, so um, if you want to check out our News Observer Voter Guide, it's online at newsobserver.com slash voter dash guide, as you can see on your screen. Uh, you can follow all our political reporters, myself included. Uh, if you follow our Twitter account at, un or at under the dome, um, you can read our fact checks at newsobserver.com slash fact check. 
And you can sign up for Under the Dome and other um, NNO newsletters, again, at the website slash newsletter. So thanks, everybody. Um, hope you guys have a great rest of your day.